Hello, this is Dr. Doug Wyatt, and this is the podcast series Considering Christianity as a Scientist. This is podcast 14 in our series, and in this podcast, we continue our discussions and consideration of Jesus and his teachings, and I would like to discuss the resurrection. I full well know that as scientists, as critical thinkers, even for myself as an observational, hypothetical data scientist, how difficult it is for us to believe that there was such a thing as a resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus died, we can believe. There is evidence for that. That Jesus was buried, we can believe. There is evidence for that. But as scientists, the resurrection is the most difficult thing we can imagine because it is the most unusual thing that we can consider in our logical, observational, X, Y, and Z thought process. As I considered this podcast, I analyzed my own thoughts in a much harsher, much more strict sense, just so I could prove to myself that what I said and what I believed can be something that can be said and something that can be believed. At some point, as in many things in life, we have to accept by faith that this happens because we believe it to happen. However, I want us to discuss the reasoning behind some of this belief in this podcast and see if it helps us as scientists develop the faith we might need. From our previous podcast, we discussed the crucifixion. Let me pick up there and read to you the following words. This is from the book of John. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross upon the Sabbath, for the day of the Sabbath was a high holy day, Ask of Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. If you remember, there were two thieves recorded as being crucified with Jesus. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they did not break his legs. Howbeit, one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and straightway there came out blood and water. And he that hath seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knoweth that what he says is true, that you also may believe. This is the writer of this gospel saying he witnessed this event. Just so that we have a time reference for these events, The crucifixion and the death of Jesus really occurred over a period of about nine hours as measured by the Jewish day from six in the morning until six in the evening. 
So about six in the morning is when Jesus appeared before Pilate. About nine in the morning is when he was crucified. Several statements of his are recorded between nine and noon. About noon is when the darkness appeared over all the land, over all the earth. Comment is made. And then Jesus dies roughly about 3 p.m. later that afternoon. There are several events that happened at his death that we discussed previously, but Jesus's crucifixion and and death was over about a nine-hour period. And it's recorded that he had died, physically died, by the eyewitnesses that were there. One of the things to think about was that if the enemies of Christianity had wanted to stop Christianity right then, they could have given proof that Jesus did not die or that Jesus was not resurrected, what we're going to discuss over the next few minutes. That would have been the easiest thing to do. They could not. They did not have the evidence. They did not have the proof. They did not have the eyewitnesses, anything to prove their point. So they could not stop the process that Jesus had started. The Jewish religious leadership wanted to stop Jesus's followers and his movement right then. They knew that he had prophesied about his resurrection and they knew that in their own scriptural prophecies, there was going to be a resurrection. They actually asked for the tomb to be sealed and guarded, both of which happened. This was a very normal, very logical, and very practical thing for them to do, something we might do today. Let me continue reading, and I'm reading from Luke. Jesus was dead. He had been deemed dead by the Roman soldiers who were responsible for the crucifixion, and they had to be correct on penalty of their own lives if they reported something false to their leadership. And here we read from Luke. And behold, a man named Joseph, who was a counselor, a good man, and a righteous man, and had not consented to the death of Jesus, a man of Arimathea, a city of Jews who was looking for the kingdom of God, This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He assumed Jesus was dead and knew him to be dead. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth. So Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus down from the cross and laid him in a tomb that was hewn in stone where never man had yet lain. And it was the day of the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. Jesus was known to be dead by an educated Jewish scholar who was a follower of Jesus and placed in the follower's tomb. It should be known and considered that the tomb was fairly close to where the crucifixion occurred. I don't know in meters how far away, but it was certainly close enough for followers to see where they had taken his body. So there were witnesses of the transfer between, of Jesus between the cross and to his tomb. Many people saw him dead. As we have discussed, the Jews were concerned about 
followers of Jesus stealing his body. And I will read further in this time in the Gospel of Matthew. Now on the morrow, which is the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees were gathered together with Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, and then the last error, talking about Jesus' teachings, will be worse than the first. And Pilate said unto them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the burial chamber secure and sealed the stone and posted their guard. From the perspective of everybody who knew about the crucifixion, saw the crucifixion, Jesus had been witnessed to be dead, known to be dead, and buried. For the Pharisees and the Jewish religious elite, this is what they wanted. Out of sight, out of mind. Let this whole Jesus movement thing die down. It will go away. That is what they assumed. Jesus had been initially buried hastily. His body was not prepared, as was the typical custom for a Jewish burial. So his family members and his followers and his friends, recorded in the Bible, wanted him properly prepared. And as recorded, this is time for the book of Mark. And when the Sabbath was passed, remember they could not do anything or do any work during the Sabbath, so they had to let Jesus lay in the tomb unprepared. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. This is sort of a telling statement itself. They were so sure he was dead, they went out and bought spices so they could come prepare his body. I'm going to continue reading from Mark. And very early on the first day of the week, that morning, they came to the tomb when the sun was risen. So they came to the tomb right at sunrise. And they were saying among themselves, who shall roll away the stone for us from the door? These stones were typically hundreds of pounds, sometimes measured in tons, circular stones that rolled in a, a channel to seal these tombs. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy person, so he had himself a proper tomb built. As they were considering this, and looking up, they saw that the stone was rolled back, for it was exceeding great, implying it was a very large stone. And they entered the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, arrayed in a white robe, and they were amazed. And this young man said to them, Be not amazed. Ye seek Jesus the Nazarene, which has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He goes before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, as he said he would. And they went out and fled for the, from the tomb, trembling and astonished. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They traveled to where a group of the apostles were and told them what happened. Peter was with those disciples and rose and ran to the tomb. A couple of disciples also ran to the tomb with him. So these disciples, who had basically fled from Jesus during his crucifixion and trial, had hidden from him. Remember, Peter denied him three times. 
had left and went to a safe area. Only Jesus's immediate family and close personal friends stayed to watch his crucifixion and where he was buried. And when they saw that he was not there, they did not know what to think. So they went and found the apostles, Peter being the principal of those apostles. They ran to the tomb, saw that Jesus was missing, and they were very confused. And so they went back to their own houses or wherever they were staying. As scientists, we can accept the fact that there was a man called Jesus. We can accept the fact that he was a great teacher, may have had medical skills, could have been extremely intelligent. And in our minds, we think this was a great man. He changed the world. But we always have a hard time with his divine being, Jesus as the Son of God. We didn't even have a problem as a scientist considering a virgin birth because that can be done today by our scientific methods. We've got to step away from our observed rational thought process and take that next step, a cosmic thought process, something that's a little more universal in our, as, as a thinking process to consider the resurrection of Jesus. Many of my scientific friends, if not most, stumble on this concept. No, he could have been a great man with great teaching and influenced all of these people, but when he died, he was dead. There was no resurrection of Jesus. I want to address that resurrection of Jesus with a few cogent points to help us believe that this really happened. Because I think if you think about it, there was no method for it ever to be denied. And of all the people that were there when it happened, in the area when it happened, the common news cycle of the day, it was never denied. And Lord knows, pardon the pun, that the Jewish religious hierarchy and the Roman political hierarchy would love to have had this concept that Jesus, who was crucified on the cross, rose again from the dead. They would love to have squashed that concept because it was extremely dangerous to both their religious orthodoxy and to their political process. Typical skeptics' questions about ev as evidence for the resurrection of Jesus kind of start with his existence overall, that Jesus was just a mythological figure. There are so many external references to him. Remember the things from earlier podcasts uh, from Josephus and all the subsequent writings, all the documentary text fragments, the archaeology, the imagery. He was not just a mythological figure. Jesus existed. Well, many will say Jesus was just a man, not God in man form. And that's, that's an easy explanation to discuss. 
First of all, there are written records of Jesus doing extraordinary things that were considered far beyond human in his own time, his miracles and things like that. Second of all, there were the prophecies in the ancient writings that existed prior to Jesus that referred to his position, his figure, his activities. But one of the strongest arguments in my own mind is the argument that C.S. Lewis, the author C.S. Lewis came up with, that Jesus could not only be a good man because of Jesus's teachings, what he is recorded as teaching and what he is rec- what he taught, he could only be one, the son of God, two, a liar, or three, a madman. Well, he was not a madman and he was not a liar. So that leaves the son of God. One of the other objections to Jesus's existence and his resurrection was that Jesus's followers made it all up. Well, Let's think about that for just a minute. Jesus's own followers did not quite understand what he was getting ready to do with this crucifixion, death, and resurrection all the way until the end. I mean, Peter, James, Andrew, they did not quite understand what was going on. And then after Jesus was crucified, they thought he was dead. And when the women came from the tomb and told him that Jesus had arisen, They didn't believe them. Then Jesus appeared to several people over the next few days, and they didn't know who he was, nor did at the time believe that this person they had known as Jesus had resurrected, was alive and walking around again. It took Jesus himself talking to these people to make them believe that it was him himself who was resurrected, clearly written in the Bible that way. What's interesting about that is they so believed that, that they were willing to die, which most of them did. Not all, but most, certainly many of them did because of that belief. They could not negate, they could not ignore, they could not forget, they could not rationalize that Jesus had not been resurrected to the point where they could not deny it even upon pain of death and death itself. Many considered the testimony of the women who first observed Jesus' resurrection as unreliable. After all, this was a very patriarchal society and the testimony of women was considered meaningless. And so their choice as witnesses is actually very unique. If somebody had wanted to prove that Jesus was resurrected, they would have gotten significant figures, the religious authorities, the political authorities, to witness it or to observe it. So the concept of the resurrection being fabricated by using political leaders to validate a story or statement was not done. He went to the simplest of people at the time for his proof and then proved his existence and self and resurrected state to others afterwards. If the authorities wanted to really negate the testimony of the witnesses, the best thing they could have done was to produce Jesus's body. That would have shut everybody up. They could not produce his body. 
because he was living. He was walking around. Matter of fact, he was walking around in a state where those near him could not immediately identify who he was until he identified himself. And then there's this other objection to the resurrected Christ that is is very interesting to me in that the resurrection was not important. It is not germane to the Jesus story. Well, the physical resurrection of Jesus is only important if it's true. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, then an unbeliever is just the same, no worse off than before. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then it's reasonable to believe that everything that Jesus said is true, that he died for the sins of the world, that he was the son of God, and that you receive eternal life by believing in Jesus and his teachings. The resurrection is only important if it's true. There is a theory of objection to the resurrection of Jesus that all the witnesses that saw him were hallucinating. Well, the fact is they were all separated by various locations, so it was not a mass hallucination of any type. But also, those who did see Jesus after the crucifixion did not expect to see Jesus. Even his own apostles and disciples did not expect to see him nor recognize him until he identified himself. So hallucination is not really a possibility. There's another theory out there that Jesus really did not die on the cross. This is sometimes called the swoon theory. Well, he had hung on the cross for several hours and he had his side pierced with the spear. That's a historical record. But most importantly, if Jesus did not die through the process of crucifixion, the Roman soldiers who were responsible for it would have failed in their duty and they would have been severely punished. They would make sure that Jesus was dead. They were so sure he was dead when he came off the cross that they did not bother to break his legs as they did with other crucified victims who had survived their time on the cross. They had to die. Crucifixion was a death penalty. Another interesting fact is that the Bible records that when Jesus was stabbed in the side, that his blood was mixed with water. The separation process at death had already started. He was medically dead. There's another theory that Jesus's body was stolen. Well, let's think about that for just a minute. There were guards posted at Jesus's tomb. Well, the guards, upon penalty of death, would not have shirked their duty and allowed anyone in there, nor stolen the body themselves. Their job was to protect that sealed tomb. Well, the seal itself on the tomb was a, was a very large rock and very unlikely that could have, it could have been moved by one man. So a coordinated effort would have been required to steal Jesus's body, possibly by his disciples, but the disciples would not have gone against the Roman guard or the to, uh, temple guard that was guarding Jesus's tomb. Besides, the disciples and the apostles did not still understand that Jesus was going to be resurrected. 
they would have had no reason to steal his body, nor would they have wanted to be ritually unclean by touching and being around a dead body such as that. In a metropolitan area the size of ancient Jerusalem at the time, it would have been very hard to sneak a body through the streets, night or day, and not be noticed by some of the Roman guard or other people in the street. And then maybe the final objection is a reach for many people, is that everybody went to the wrong tomb. They did not know which tomb Jesus was in. Well, the tomb was given by a follower of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, who showed people where the tomb was for Jesus to be laid. The women who prepared Jesus' body for the burial and then came back later to do the final preparations after the Sabbath was over knew where his body was. And then when the women told the disciples, remember the Bible records Peter running to the tomb? Well, he had to know where to go. So the fact that all of the followers during the resurrection and immediately after the resurrection went to the wrong tomb is really not practical thought. So as scientists, how do we analyze everything that we just discussed? We either have to assume that there were seven or eight lines of evidence that this did not happen, that none in themselves are conclusive, or we have to assume that the resurrection did happen. I believe our next podcast will explain what happened after the resurrection that gives considerable proof. So many people saw Jesus. What's known as the day of Pentecost came only 50 days later, a few days after Jesus' departure, where he gave the Spirit to those that would eventually go out and preach Christianity across the world. And you see where we are now. And it's very interesting that just 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, after the Holy Spirit had visited the disciples, that Peter stood up, a man who was a fisherman, a man who had denied that he knew Jesus just 50 days before, stood up and spoke brilliantly and forcefully and came up with four key facts to hundreds upon hundreds of people that were listening to him in the temple square, in the squares, and around metropolitan Jerusalem. Everybody that listened to Peter knew this story. It was still in the news cycle. It was talk on the streets. People discussed it at dinner. It, it was everywhere. What this, this Jesus thing that had happened was everywhere. And Peter just laid out four facts that us as scientists can find firm in their data significance. Everyone that listened to Peter knew that Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God by miracles and signs. 
Everybody there, even the temple priest, knew that Jesus had done miracles and signs in front of them and possibly for and to some of them. Everyone there knew that Jesus was crucified. The Romans knew it. The Jews asked for it. Any visitors that were in town knew what was going on. It was a public event, a spectacle. Everybody knew that Jesus was crucified. And as Peter reminded them, that his death was by God's set purpose. Third point, everyone there, mostly Jews, knew that David, whom all knew as the great Jewish king, spoke about the resurrection of Jesus a thousand years before this happened. Everybody was expecting this to happen, but they didn't really expect how it happened. So everybody there knew that fact. And then everybody was there were witnesses, either visually or audibly or by story, that Jesus was gone, had disappeared, had resurrected, and had talked to people, possibly many in that crowd itself, that Jesus was alive and walking around until he departed this planet. Everybody there knew that. It was in the news cycle and story of the day. Those were four things that Peter brought up to these guys that were listening to him that, you know, they could not be argued with in that context with that crowd. Let's have some thoughts on why we needed a resurrection of Jesus. As scientific thinkers, how do we reconcile this resurrection concept? What is the reasoning and especially why was it necessary? Could God not just have snapped his fingers and fixed everything? Yes, he could have, but let's state what we think we know, yet step out of our scientific comfort zone and maybe understand why this was a much greater act of love than just snapping his fingers and why. Okay, let me state, the more we discover about our universe, the more we realize we don't know. One answered question leads to many more questions. This is why we enjoy science. There are many aspects to the universe. As mentioned in some of our first podcasts, we discuss an eternally existing God beyond our understanding capability. Remember when we discussed Anselm? But not beyond our perception. We can sense and feel God physically, mentally, emotionally, and with our spirit. We stated that as humans, we are both a physical temporal presence and an eternal spiritual presence, soul and spirit. Most people I know can sense, feel, and understand this duality. We also discussed in earlier podcasts that there are other created beings in the spiritual dimension we often call angels. They seem to have different attributes and can approach God directly and are often his interface with humans, his agents, his staff, for lack of a better word. They also have free will just like us, and this is important, and they can interact with us. I do not know what the physical or sensual abilities are for angels, but they do have a higher knowledge and experience base, and their being or forms are eternal by our standards, much like our spirits. They are apparently not limited to a physical form like us, but can manifest as something perceived as akin to that. We can see them as people when they choose us to see them. They have a hierarchy in their ranks, an organization as we understand it, and can stand in the presence of God and communicate with him. This is what we are taught by the ancient literature, 
Genesis, Job, Ezekiel, Enoch, etc. As a scientist, I have to evaluate this concept but cannot deny that it is possible. Let's continue and assume that it is. A group of angels are given some responsibilities over this new creation called humans and earth and whatever else we are part of. Using their God-given free will, some angels do not like this and rebel against the wishes of God. I believe that God has given all sentient creatures free will. This angered, and I'm sure saddened, God. And these angels were cast out and became the tempters of early mankind and brought evil concepts and thoughts into the world. To this point, mankind had not experienced or known of evil, even though we also had free will. Therefore, there was no sin because mankind did not know of sin or have the intellectual thought of sin. We typically call the leader of these rebellious angels Satan, even though the literature has many different names for him, mostly as language has evolved and changed. This rebellious angel, cast out of heaven, was allowed to tempt the newly created mankind and did so. Why did God allow this? Because he had also given humankind free will. We had to be allowed to decide to choose God. God wants us to freely choose to worship and love him as he has freely chosen to love us. This is really quite a simple concept. When we were taught sin, we were taught something we could choose instead of loving God and his desire for us through our free will. Biblically, we know this as our choice to sin and rebel against what God wished for us, the original sin, ab initio, sin number one, however you interpret the Adam story and over any time period you believe. When the angels rebelled, they were cast from heaven, permanent banishment with an ultimate fate. The rebellious angels wanted the same fate for us. They were envious, jealous, and had developed an evil being. Remember in earlier podcasts where we discussed what evil was? We were given another chance. God's son, a part of God, given equal rights by God, stood up for us against the rebellious angels and for created humankind. There was a conflict at that level and an action was required. I do not pretend to know the reasoning or to understand the logic or the cosmic implications, but for me personally, I believe it was to prove to those rebellious angels the depth of God's love to us, which they must have doubted. God's son, Jesus in our name, agreed to give himself up to the rebellious angels for death to atone as a substitute for the destruction of humankind. God would turn his head, forsake is the word used in the Bible, allowing evil rebelliousness to kill his begotten, his son. I have always wondered if evil thought it would win at that time. I find it hard to believe that the rebellious angel would honestly believe he could win given his knowledge of God. It shows his total rebelliousness against all God and his infatuation with all things physical and contrary to God to believe that. Jesus simply beat death. He let his body die and his spirit to separate from his human entity and then return. I believe evil had a party until they realized what was happening. Rebelliousness, Satan, evil, whatever you envision, was simply and totally beaten, made irrelevant. And since the angels had been banished from heaven, 
condemn them to be punished separate from God for all, well, for lack of a better word, time. Jesus saved humankind, but I also believe he condemned the angels for all time. A perfect human divine sacrifice, unbeatable on any conceptual cosmic scale. If God is the highest concept perceivable by the human mind, then this act of sacrifice is the highest act of love and absolution possible. Perfect righteousness, God on earth, allowed to be killed by the results of the temptations of evil, incongruent shock in heaven and on earth, absolute shock and despair turned into absolute victory on earth and in heaven. I do not know if humankind on this planet is special in the universe and do expect we will discover life in many places, but in this case, we may be very special. I believe this to be the reason for the crucifixion and the resurrection, an action and statement by God that he wants all of his creatures, humankind certainly, and maybe heavenly kind as well, of free will to freely and willfully love him and love his creation. Is this a logical and scientific thought? It depends. It does require faith and a belief in things we cannot directly observe and measure. However, in my mind, this thought process helps me believe, understand, and love. Our universe is so much larger in thought than we think. In our next podcast, I want to pick up here and discuss this event, this event called Pentecost in the Bible and its impact on Christianity. It is sort of day one of the beginning of the expansion of Christianity. Thank you.